This is Christy Drutman, and you are listening to Brown Girl Green, where I interview environmental leaders and advocates about diversity and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis. I'm working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. I'm recording this podcast on Ohlone land, otherwise known as the Bay Area. This is your daily reminder that we're all living on stolen land. And I wanted to shout out Orca, who features their song called Heal in today's episode. You can check out more of their music on SoundCloud. What's up, everyone? In this week's episode of Brown Girl Green, I wanted to talk about racism in the outdoors and how it's connected to deeper systemic racism plaguing our country today. So unless you've been living under a rock, you obviously know that the country is falling apart before our eyes. We are seeing that systemic racism, which has been going on for a really long time, has now reached this cusp, this breaking point with the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, who was killed by a white Minneapolis policeman named Derek Chauvin, who kneeled on his neck with the full weight of his body for nearly nine minutes. George Floyd screamed, I can't breathe, and now has shook the nation, amongst the many other deaths such as Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, the list goes on and on, of black people in America who have been murdered by the police. Earlier that same day in New York City, Amy Cooper, a white woman who was walking her dog without a leash in Central Park, called 911 on a black bird watcher named Christian Cooper. All Christian Cooper was doing was telling this white lady, hey, put your dog on a leash in the rambles in Central Park. Wasn't a big ass. Then this white woman started freaking out on him and is like, oh my gosh, I'm going to tell the police that there's an African-American man threatening my life. Calls 911. Christian Cooper captures the whole thing on his smartphone. The police, everyone can see how ridiculously racist this woman is. And she gets fired from her job. Twitter did its job, social media did its job, and got that racist woman the punishment she deserved for being so terrible to this innocent black bird watcher. But the thing is, is the connection between Christian Cooper and George Floyd is that they're not that different. In both situations, white people viewed a black person as a threat to their safety and their well-being. So they jumped to conclusions in really violent and offensive ways, trying to accuse and get a innocent black man arrested for just bird watching. And you have a more extreme case of George Floyd who actually lost his life because of the racist assumptions and implications of white people and white police officers against the black community. Amy Cooper's actions were not unique. They were not out of the ordinary. In fact, they are so commonplace, but Christian Cooper was one of those very few people that was able to actually capture the moment in real time on his smartphone, and that's why it blew up. And it's so easy to call someone like Amy Cooper a racist and just leave it at that, but it doesn't really detail why she felt compelled or like the safety or the ability and the freedom to be able to act this way towards a black person. And so we have to dive deeper. And when we're thinking about access to outdoor space and we're thinking about just how the black community is viewed within that space, we have to address that Amy Cooper in that situation viewed that she had ownership or a say over white space, over Central Park. Uh, Whether we like to call that or not, there was an unconscious bias that she had in the back of her mind that like, this is my space, 
I'm going to own it. If I feel threatened, then I have every right to call this person who in theory is supposed to have the same access to this space. I'm, I'm gonna call them a threat. I'm gonna call the police and I need this address because they're encroaching in my territory. We have to examine why did Amy Cooper feel this way? And it goes back all the way to 1619 when the first slaves were brought onto US soil. They were considered property. There's been this whole history of black people having to fight for their rights in this country, being able to get basic civil liberties because white people just continue to be so afraid of them, afraid of diversity, afraid of the other. And black people continue to be pit as this threat to property, territory, for white people to have autonomy and control. And I see that even in 2020 in our public spaces, whether it's Permit Patty or Backyard Becky or now Awful Amy, we have these white people who feel so entitled to say who has access to resources and who doesn't, even if it's quote unquote established by the literal government that this is a public space for everyone. And I'm not just gonna point fingers at white people for this. This is also an issue for non-black people of color who also have a ton of internalized racism and unconscious biases that they have chosen to not unlearn or have been socialized that they needed to accept to, to assimilate in America. So this is a call out for y'all out there, non-black people of color who have also been guilty of othering or feeling threatened by a black person. And so we have to address our anti-blackness in both ourselves and our communities because if the George Floyd case taught us anything, an Asian American police officer who was Hmong who turned his cheek the other way as George Floyd was suffocating, we have a lot of work to do. So I'm not gonna spend the rest of this episode detailing all the ins and outs on why systemic racism exists in the US today. I recommend you going online, finding amazing journalists and writers and philosophers and public health officials that have been talking about this for a long time about the gaps and the policies that have caused black America to receive the short end of the stick on all sectors uh, across the US today. What I just wanted to say is that when it comes to our education, our healthcare, our housing market and our economy, black people are losing out. Even in New York City today, which is the epicenter of the pandemic for COVID-19, we're seeing that the black community is being hospitalized at twice the rate of Caucasians with black New Yorkers being hospitalized at a rate of 632 per 100,000 people, while Caucasians were hospitalized at a rate of 284 per 100,000 people. That's a stark difference. And, and this was according to the city of New York. And I just wanted to bridge the gap to show that when we're thinking about issues like COVID and respiratory ailments, we, we have to think about that being connected to these issues around police brutality. And along with our hospital beds being filled with black patients due to issues like the pandemic at an alarming rate, I also wanted to bring up uh, environmental injustice. And so when it comes to the environment, the black community is also disproportionately harmed by pollution. Researchers at the Environmental Protection Agency's National Center for Environmental Assessment 
looked at facilities emitting air pollution as well as at the racial and economic profiles of surrounding communities. They found that black Americans were exposed to significantly more of the small pollution particles known as PM or particulate matter 2.5, which has been associated with lung disease, heart disease, and premature death. Most of this type of pollution comes from burning fossil fuels, which typically is found in power plants or factories that are typically located in black communities. Blacks were exposed to 1.5 times more of this form of pollution uh, of particulate matter that gets lodged into their lung tissue compared to the population at large. And this was according to the American Journal of Public Health. And so I wanted to bring up that when it comes to the environment and it comes to the black community, I feel like all of these things are, are interconnected, that black communities are disinvested in, they are exposed to the most violence, the most pollution, uh, and, and instead don't receive the same kind of access to education, wealth, and resources as other demographic groups. And this is just what has been statistically shown across the board. And, you know, it's so easy for people to say, oh, it's the black community's fault for why this violence is occurring. But we have to look at systemic racism. And I think that we have to start asking ourselves, why do we allow this to happen? We need to say no. And so in today's episode, I really wanted to unpack why is racial equity in the outdoors so important? And I wanted to bring on Dion Ferris, who is the Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion of the National Audubon Society, which is a uh, very old, very white bird organization uh, that's all focused on conservation and the preservation of lands to support birds. I wanted to talk to her, like ask her what are her tips on actually addressing the outdoors, addressing conservation, and addressing the lack of distribution of green space for people of color, particularly black people, to feel safe and included. And so this episode uh, was recorded about two years ago, but it's still so, so relevant. And I especially love us talking about birding because it really made me think about Christian Cooper and think about Black Birders Week that just happened this week, which was this really awesome social media event hosted by folks like the Hood Naturalists, where black people decided that they wanted to show that there are people of color doing amazing outdoor conservation, wildlife ecology work to protect nature and protect the spaces we love, and that they deserve a space in that. And I think when we're thinking about people of color and the outdoors, the environment, and the overall climate crisis, we have to make sure that we're bringing people of color to the forefront of these conversations, especially black people, because their communities are the most impacted by these decisions. And they are the ones that are going to be most policed and most abused when it comes to deciding who gets access to natural resources and who does not. And so I hope that you enjoy today's episode with Dion Ferris. Uh, it's really exciting because she works at the intersections of civil rights, environmental justice, 
public policy. She's a true community champion. And I also feel like she has a really interesting take because she was a part of uh, the original group that convened with Congress to create Executive Order 12898 which was an executive order under Bill Clinton's administration in 1994 that essentially was demanding for a federal level policy uh, declaring environmental justice as a right for low income populations and minorities. And this set a precedent for a lot of the environmental justice work that's happened in the past several decades, work that I got inducted into in college uh, when I was studying environmental justice and policy. And I, I find this conversation really important because when we're thinking about things like environmental justice, it feels like this really broad, um, kind of still ambiguous term where we're still sorting out what does that actually mean for our communities on the ground. And I think we're still thinking about that when that comes to thinking about systemic racism and thinking about things like police brutality. How can we actually take these visions of building the world we want that removes violence against black people, but actually distill that down on a local community level that actually gets people to take action, not just one day out of the year, not just one week, but for their whole lifetimes to continue dismantling systems of white supremacy. So I'm excited for you to listen to today's episode with Dion and learn more about her suggestions on how we can do this work moving forward. Dion is the Vice President for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion for the National Audubon Society. For those of you who may not know what the National Audubon Society is, they are focused a lot around conservation, birding, natural resources, and all kinds of good stuff that you'll learn about during this episode. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Christy. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I really wanted to bring you onto my show because... I think that your work, especially as a woman of color in, in the conservation field is very significant because I think a lot of people believe that we can't care about environmental issues until we're really addressing social justice issues in the world. And especially with everything that's going on through American politics today, it seems like caring about the environment and caring about birds and plants and trees and, and so forth is kind of an afterthought, but it, it seems apparent we as people of color and communities across the nation need natural resources more than ever and need to reconnect to the natural world in these dire times. So I would love to learn just a little bit more about your background growing up and getting into conservation and what really motivates you to do your work in this field. Well, thank you, Christy. And again, thank you for the invitation to join you today. I'm excited to be here. As you know, I'm an environmental lawyer by trade. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that as I talk more about my background. I think very early on uh, as a young girl, my parents were really into parks and open spaces and nature. We had a cottage by the lake. So interacting with nature, enjoying trees, plants, wildlife, habitat was just a natural occurrence in my life. 
So I grew up respecting nature, enjoying nature, and appreciating opportunities on almost a daily basis to be in the outdoors. So my life is rooted in an understanding and an appreciation of nature. It's probably why I went into the environmental field. Uh, it's probably why I decided to pursue environmental law as a career, because I appreciated that preserving the planet is something that we all ought to be doing. And I wanted to contribute in my way to doing that. So I'm an environmental lawyer. In uptaking that as a career, my first real job after law school was at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. And there is no other better place nationally to really understand how environment is protected through environmental laws and regulations and being participatory in protection of the planet in those ways. As I said, my first job was at EPA. It's where I learned about the mechanics of moving a national public policy agenda. It's where I learned uh, how you work with federal and state governmental agencies and how you work with private sector companies in an interdisciplinary way, in a collaborative way to protect the environment. As we all know, EPA is the nation's chief agency for environmental policy, and it's a great place to learn the basics of federal and state legislation and regulations, congressional and internal affairs, development of regulations and compliance with environmental laws and regulations, all the ingredients that go into people working together at the intersection of the natural environment and the human environment. I was an enforcement official at EPA for a few years, filing cases against companies for failure to comply with environmental laws and regulations. And that's where I first learned that communities of color and low-income communities were disproportionately affected by environmental hazards and poisons that endangered their health and community well-being. EPA is also where I learned the lesson that communities are not at the environmental decision table in a lot of cases, and they're not engaged and involved by EPA and other public and private sector stakeholders in either public policy decisions or environmental cleanup decisions or decisions that really at a fundamental level affect community prosperity and community health. Also, I think it's important to note that as we know now, more often than not, communities are the stakeholders that have the most at stake in environmental and conservation decisions. Decisions that affect places important to them for a variety of reasons. Often communities are the most hard pressed to be prepared with the right knowledge and expertise to engage on complex issues when they're first confronted by them. For example, in comparing communities with environmental groups, typically environmental groups have salaried and specialized staff, lots of experts around the table and compared to many, many communities, lots more resources. I'll tell you something else about my journey as a woman of color in conservation, and, and that is that people in many of the communities that are most deleteriously affected look a lot like me. So it's also somewhat of a calling 
to be involved in the field of environment and conservation for me. I decided early on that working with communities was where I wanted to be, using my skills and my talents to, let's call it level the playing field for communities. Because at heart, I am a community builder. And I think it's something that we all need to focus on, building communities in healthy ways. And for me, that means first focusing on environmental and economic justice for people most affected by policy decisions and investments or the lack of investments. So I guess bottom lining it, I wanted to prioritize working with grassroots communities to build their capacity to work with other stakeholders, providing tools and strategies to engage people and their allies in what I like to call institutional and organizational change, building the capacity of other stakeholders to work with communities and building the capacity of communities to be at the table, speaking the language, understanding the processes and being effective at advancing organizational and institutional change. So that's a little bit about how I got into being very, very interested and committed to the inclusion and activation of people of color in their communities around environment and conservation. I just really want to pick your brain about like how you went about establishing or pushing for the executive order. I mean, I think that that was a really monumental groundbreaking moment, especially in the environmental justice movement that really made environmental justice organizers gain visibility on a national scale. And I'm just wondering what were some of like the challenges that you faced in that process? It sounds like you were able to come with a with an expertise uh, that was a, that was able to create this like pathway for accessibility for like community organizers to be be in the political arena. So I just want to know, like, what were some challenges you faced with that? And also just how did you use your skills to be able to be that bridge between those two worlds? Well, I think I should start out by saying that throughout my career, I have often been a translator of complex policy language. Uh, both ways, uh, a translator for communities, a communicator on behalf of communities, and then uh, working with stakeholders to help them understand how to be more effective and responsive in working with communities. And that was largely my role in helping to implement the executive order 12898, interpreting what the needs were at the community level into government speak and a document or an instrument that would help move a, an environmental justice policy agenda. You have to remember that at the time, environmental justice wasn't even in the lexicon. So one of our biggest challenges was helping government and the public and private sector understand what we mean by the terminology environmental and economic justice. 
helping people to understand that the environment doesn't stop at the door of the workplace. The environment doesn't stop at the door of the home. The environment is where we live, where we work, where we learn and where we play. So we were reinterpreting the entire meaning and definition of the word environment. We were introducing new language to people who didn't quite understand what this new wave was all about. So the first challenge was simply integrating the language into the lexicon of government and into the language of other stakeholders. The second big challenge was the fact that environmental justice activists are far flung. We are across the United States. And in fact, the environmental and economic justice movement is a global movement. So we had to tackle developing a strategy that would be fully inclusive of the views of people across large swaths of territory. So we established a communications process to make decisions collectively about what strategy we would use to influence the federal government to develop an executive order and then a collective process to, to decide what the ingredients of that executive order were that would move the federal government in the, in the direction that we wanted it to go. And we had some advantages. We had, um, uh, at the very earliest stages, uh, even before the executive order, uh, EPA Administrator Bill Riley, who I might add is a Republican, was very interested in this work. And he was the first um, high-level person at EPA that opened the doors of the agency to a conversation with activists all across the country about what this meant in terms of EPA's agenda and EPA's responsibilities. At the time we started to move the concept of developing an executive order, President Bill Clinton was just elected. And we had Vice President Al Gore, a very serious environmental champion, as an asset uh, to help engage us in conversation with the new president. A lot of people in Washington know that when a new president is elected, there's a process of engagement that all kinds of organizations and institutions and companies engaged in. And that involves development of papers that inform and advise the incoming president of public policy and strategy priorities that need to be addressed. Given the long time that I'd spent in Washington, I knew that this was an optimal time to develop some papers that articulated an environmental and eco economic justice frame for the new presidential administration. So I wrote two papers, one for US EPA and one for the US Department of Justice. And we framed pr priorities, strategies, and goals that articulated advancement of an environmental and economic justice agenda for those two federal agencies, inevitably arguing uh, priorities and goals to advance environmental justice. President Clinton was very interested. Uh, President Vice President Gore was an ideal messenger. And the long and the short of that story is uh, very soon after the administration 
uh, of Bill, Bill Clinton's administration took over, we were able to concretize the idea of an environmental justice executive order. And we entered into negotiations with the administration and the cross section of federal agencies about the quality of government speak uh, that would articulate our priorities and goals. And in a very short period of time by political standards, we were able to instrumentalize that executive order. And I'm really proud to say that I was standing behind President Clinton in the Oval Office at the signing uh, ceremony for the executive order. So the order is not a perfect instrument, but it does galvanize the federal government across 17 federal agencies to take a very close look at the impacts of their decisions on communities of color and to take affirmative and indeed aggressive steps to ensure that communities that are most affected by environmental depredations are at the table, prepared and capable of engaging in decision-making that affects their places. How do you feel that people like the conservative Republican folks that, that were a part of this process, like how do you think they were able to see eye to eye with you all on why this issue was so important? I've always been committed to sort of walking down the center of the aisle. I'll take help wherever I can get it. So I, I work hard to be nonpartisan or bipartisan in the work because you need to find champions where they are and do what you can to bring them along. I think Republicans, Democrats, independents, we all live in places. And we all understand that in order for us to thrive and prosper, those places need to be clean and healthy. And I think that's the conversation we need to have. Although, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of partisanization of language these days that impedes us talking to each other and hearing each other. And uh, hopefully as time moves on, uh, we'll see improvement in the balkanization of politics that we're seeing now. Yeah, like I'm just wondering with like this current administration, the political atmosphere we're in right now, like with Executive Order 12898, like what are some of your feelings about what environmental justice means in the America we have today? Well, I think it's important for us to understand that the human environment and the natural environment are interconnected. They're inextricable from each other. And we can't talk about protecting birds and wildlife without talking about preserving the spaces that birds and wildlife migrate through. So we have to work hard to communicate the interconnectedness of the natural and the human environment. And as we recognize that interconnectedness, then addressing social issues becomes less of a barrier. Social issues are human issues, are environmental issues. And we've just got to get that through some seemingly today very resistant heads. I agree. I feel that there's a lot of 
resistance and that that's why there's such a disconnect for people who are like, oh, those two things are separate, like social justice issues and environmental issues. And it's like, but they're all one and the same. And, and until people realize that, then like there are going to continue to be these like inequities and these hierarchies on how things are misdistributed and just misaligned across the country. So I totally agree with that. Yeah. (laughs) I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Brown Girl Green. I wanted to take the time to talk about the gap between creating institutional change and cultural change. As you heard from Dion Ferris, Executive Order 12898 served as a symbolically and materially important document to be able to guide the beginning of a conversation around accountability between the federal government and communities of color when it comes to their environment and well-being. However, as we're seeing on the ground in communities like Flint, Michigan that are predominantly black, they still do not have access to clean water which shows that the authority, funding, and consistent implementation of this executive order is missing on the local level. Persistent environmental disparities for communities of color demonstrate that there's still a lot more work that needs to be done to make this a critical policy priority that can actually be backed up by interventions, allies, and funding to make it happen. So how does this relate to cultural change? Well, I think Executive Order 12898 shows a perfect example of a policy that was passed on the federal level that symbolically is like, yeah, we want to care about brown people. We want to care about how our policies impact brown people. And yet we see that this is like a broad framework. It's making an impact in terms of getting a conversation and a story started. But guess what? Executive Order 12898 was created in 1994. And guess what? Your girl was born in 1995. And so we are here 25 years later. And what really has been done for environmental justice? I would say that, yes, there's been some big wins here, big wins there. But if we're still seeing that communities of color, particularly black communities, are having their air and their water still poisoned on the ground at the local level, we're, we're addressing things way beyond just uh, changing institutions. We have to address cultural change. We have to address why are institutions even doing this in the first place and not prioritizing the well-being, the health, and the safety of black communities. And I think when we're thinking about that, that's where we see the disparity between, you know, these big bureaucratic federal government actors being like, yeah, we care about black people, we want to take action, black lives matter, but on a microcosm, when you're seeing people getting acquitted for killing a kid walking home who was just buying a pack of Skittles or someone buying a toy gun getting shot because a police officer gets scared, you have to start thinking what really is institutional change when at a cultural level we're still acting like those things are okay or they're commonplace and we just can't say they're okay anymore. And so I think I see a lot of parallels between environmental justice moving forward and like 
as I'm hearing more campaigns going forward that are talking about defunding the police in different cities and talking about how we can address racism in the workplace, uh, et cetera, et cetera, I'm, I'm starting to hear that more people are realizing that it's not enough to just say, yeah, black communities historically have been you know, given the short end of the stick when it comes to health, economy, the environment, et cetera. It's not enough to just say that. We also need to be thinking, well, how are we gonna change things moving forward in every sector, in our day-to-day -day interactions with each other? And so I think if anything, what I learned is that we can't just expect people to operate within the current system and just leave it at that. that you know, we have an executive order, we pass this policy, we pass this law. Yes, those things are really important, but I think that if we don't see it distilled and that it just becomes common sense in the collective consciousness of the average American to recognize truly why that's wrong and how their unconscious biases helped create and perpetuate the systemic racism through our institutions today, I'm not sure how we're gonna really address this. And so, with that being said, according to Mapping Police Violence, uh, the police in the U.S. killed 1,099 people, and black people accounted for 24% of those killed, despite only being 13% of the population. And so, I just want you all to think, as a lot of people are getting angry and frustrated that people are looting or rioting, you have to ask yourself, uh, based on everything that I just said, if institutions are the only thing we're relying on as the way to be a metric of progress, and we see people recognizing that these institutions, the government, no longer serve them, don't they have the right to rise up and say something about it? And I want you all to think, what is the function of the line between nonviolent protests and violent protests then? What is expanding and what is contracting in situations of injustice? And I hope that you all can sit with all of these uh, comments and thoughts that I, I'm sharing on this break as we go into the second part of the episode with Dion, because I think it's really fundamental that we don't just leave it as another black man was killed by the police, black woman was killed by the police, and we're just saying, oh, that's so tragic, but that's just the way it is. We can't accept that anymore. We can't accept the status quo. And so in the second half of this episode, Dion gives some tips on how organizations can start to really address this. And we also get into more of the fun stuff about how we can actually bring more people of color into the outdoors to, so they actually feel safe and included in those spaces. And this is just the beginning of my conversation around addressing race, environmentalism, and the systemic racism I see within uh, the environmental field and other sectors across the country. And so I hope that you reflect on that as we go into the second half of the episode. And yeah, building off of that, I just want to know, like, with your work in Audubon, what do you think is one of the biggest challenges that you all face in pushing that kind of conversation forward, saying that, like, you know, we're committed to conservation, we're committed to protecting place, but we also recognize 
that in the political climate that we're in right now, we need to address who we're reaching and who we're talking to and who we're including in the conversation. So I just wanted to know what have been some challenges that you all have faced in dealing with that. That's a great question, Christy. And there are all kinds of challenges. And I I, want to start out by saying that one of the biggest challenges for us at Audubon, if not the biggest challenge at Audubon, is also the biggest challenge for government, the biggest challenge for the private sector, academia. It's a big challenge for everyone, and that is culture change. So what we're talking about now is equity, racial and cultural diversity and inclusion. And for organizations like Audubon and many, many others, if not all others, it's culture change. So what does that mean? What it means is that Audubon and other organizations and institutions operate within the dominant culture. You could call it the white culture. You could also refer to it as white privilege. So all of those aspects, the dominant culture is largely exclusionary of races and cultures that are perceived as different, hence culture change. We've got to deal with culture change. So at Audubon, that means transforming a venerable and influential 113-year-old, very white organization. We've got 1.2 million members. Our organization crosses five time zones. We're in the U.S., the Caribbean, and South America. We have nearly 800 employees at 60 locations, 463 chapters. It's a big organization, and culture change is no small feat. So how do we go about doing that? Well, we work on multiple levels in multiple ways. And the biggest thing is that we need to concentrate organizationally to provide impetus around culture change in a few ways. We need to build the skills of people at Audubon. And and in building those skills, we've got to help people understand the barriers and the biases, the structural or baked in governmental laws and policies and private sector decisions that impede the success of people of color and other population groups, such as LGBTQ and physically challenged populations and young people, for example. So we need to be dedicated to building skills around understanding implicit bias or attitudes and stereotypes that affect our understanding and our actions and decisions. And we need to be culturally competent, which means being respectful and responsible to the beliefs and practices and cultures and linguistic needs of racially and culturally diverse population groups. We need to know how to engage in difficult conversations about race and economic status and different cultures. So grappling with and overcoming barriers, creating culture change at Audubon and other places is really going to be transformative. It's hard work. It requires budget and staff and resources. And I think the most important thing to understand about it is that culture change for organizations like Audubon is existential. Racial and ethnic and demographic changes across America are happening now and change demands it. By 2043 or 2045, depending who's counting and how you're counting, 
People of color in the United States are going to be over half the population. We already have states that are uh, California, New Mexico, Hawaii. Cities, big cities, Atlanta, Miami, New York, many others are there already. These are changes that are inevitable and irreversible. And you might be asking, Christy, why am I leading with race? And it's because race is one of the most powerful determinants of equity. Focusing on race provides an opportunity to introduce a framework and tools and resources that can be applied to open doors to other groups. Young people, LGBTQ, physically challenged, to kind of stick with those for a moment. The demographic shifts that are existential for these organizations are also generational. Millennials are the largest single eligible voter cohort. That's a pretty <laughs> significant fact. And guess what else? 44% of those millennials are young people of color. This is the most diverse adult generation in American history. Go millennials. So organizations in the future to succeed, they're going to look more like America. They're going to operate in ways that are more welcoming, that take advantage of and incorporate the perspectives and strategies that are important to people of all races and cultures. From the environmental and conservation standpoint, you know, we talk a lot about biodiversity, making nature stronger and more resilient. So to racial and cultural diversity, reflecting the makeup of the communities that we serve will make us better and stronger and improve us in every way. Achieving equity, diversity, and inclusion will we'll do this for environment and conservation organizations, for government, academia, institutions in the public and private sectors. So that's a little bit of background about the challenges, and, and it's not just for Audubon. These are challenges that are affecting organizations everywhere. Absolutely, and I think that this generation wants to see organizations that represent their values and represent the people that they relate to the most. So I'm really glad you spoke about that. And I just wanna know on, uh, a more practical level on where people can get tapped into Audubon and the things that you all are doing for people who don't even know anything about outdoor recreation or birding. Like some people don't even know what birding is, but birding like bird watching and just like having a passion and love for birds. <laughs> like so into it. But I just wanted to know, like, what do you feel? are ways in which not just young people, but people of color, low-income communities, people that may view themselves as identifying with the marginalized community. Like, why do you think outdoor recreation and getting in touch with nature is so like important to their resilience? Well, the first thing I wanna say about that is that bird-friendly communities are healthy communities. And the second thing I'd like to say is that Birding is not only about telescopes and binoculars. Birding is about helping people understand that birds are an important part of nature and that birds can be a way that everyone appreciates nature. So if we have bird-friendly communities, we have healthy communities, birds are a bellwether of health 
in wild places, health in rural areas, health in urban spaces. So birding is a relaxing activity and it takes you outdoors, which many, many studies are telling us is important for health and mental restoration. So a little bit about that. There's a growing body of studies that shows that nature heals and soothes, soothes, new word, and restores us. Research tells us that nature can increase or reduce stress, which clearly affects us negatively. What we're seeing and hearing and experiencing at any moment is changing not only our mood, but how our nervous system and our endocrine systems and immune systems may be working. Early documentation is telling us that being out in nature and experiencing nature may even reduce mortality, but definitely it improves our, our health. So basically, regardless of age or culture, humans find nature pleasing and we need to be out in it. We're genetically programmed to find trees and plants and water and other nature elements engrossing, fascinating. We're absorbed by nature scenes and nature scenes distract from pain and discomfort. Because we find nature inherently interesting, we can focus on what we're experiencing when we're there. It provides respite for what in these days of technology are overactive minds, refreshing us, uh, helping us apply ourselves to new tasks. Some new interesting research actually shows that children that have ADHD, that being out in nature increases their attention span, which is only a good thing. The other aspect that I haven't mentioned already is physical activity. Obviously, we have an obesity crisis in this country. So being out in nature gives us an opportunity to exercise in addition to being beneficial for our mental and emotional well-being. On bird watching, well, one thing I've discovered as a budding bird watcher is that you got to have some quick reflexes to watch some birds. They move around <laughs> and you also have to have patience to observe them. And you have to have the skill of being quiet in a space that helps quieten our minds. So there are all kinds of advantages to outdoor recreation, mental resilience, emotional well-being, and, and physical improvement. And, and those are all clearly good reasons why bird watching might be an avocation for some of us. Maybe not all of us, but certainly it's beneficial for some of us. And what would you say to people who might not feel like they have access to birding or like access to outdoor recreation, like, but they do want to get started, but just don't know where to get started. Like what are some basic things that they could start doing in their neighborhoods or communities to start getting in touch with that if they like can't just go on like a camping trip for a weekend or can't go on a birding excursion for a few hours? Well, I can tell you that some of the best birding I've ever done has been in my backyard. <laughs> and so there isn't any need to take long treks to wild, expansive spaces to appreciate birds. And I think we need to understand that birding is not only about telescopes and binoculars and khakis and hats. <laughs> birding can be done in your everyday clothing on an everyday basis, looking out the windows 
or being in your backyard or in your front yard or in your neighborhood park. This is not an inaccessible activity. On the other hand, getting out into wild spaces, as we've just talked about, is highly beneficial. And if there are ways to connect with organizations in your communities that are getting people outdoors, and there's an increasing number of organizations led by young men and young women of color who are specifically focusing on African-American experiences and Latino experiences and Asian and Native American experiences and, and bringing people together in races and cultures and taking them to wilder places to the experience, the outdoors. So I encourage folks to do a little Googling. <laughs> There's an organization where you are. They are in every place, whether they're led by people of color or led by white people. Doesn't really make a difference. Connect with these organizations and take advantage of the opportunities that are being provided to experience nature in bigger and wilder places. We'll be better for it. And the other thing to add about that is contributing our cultures to the conversations is important. Helping people understand that people appreciate nature in different ways, that we have something to contribute to this conversation and this movement and what we have to say and what we think is important to protecting the planet. I love that. What would you say to a young woman of color like me, but maybe even younger than me since I graduated college, who is interested in getting into in the environmental field and conservation, but doesn't really know if like they could be a part of this field because they don't see many people that look like them. What, what would you say to her? I would say just do it. You know, in, li in, in, in life every day, we have to confront and surmount challenges. And one of the most significant challenges of people of color is isolation and being the only. And I've certainly been that over and over and over again. Uh, but I didn't let it stop me from doing what I was interested in doing. And I would encourage people to pursue what it is they want to do, irrespective of who is around them. And also to look for like-minded folks who are interested in doing the same thing and partner up and buddy up and share the experience if there's an apprehension about being alone in the context. But even in the face of the buddying up and the finding friends, as young people of color, as people of color generally, we have to recognize that there will be many places where we will be the only. And we can't be intimidated by that. And as much as we may be experiencing negative conduct, we have to, and we always have, and we will continue to power through that to make sure that we are prepared and ready and able to prosper in doing the things that we want to do. 
Hmm, I really needed to hear that. <laughs> if there was one bird that you think you embody in your own life and how you exist through the world, what would it be and why? Oh my, you know, I haven't thought about that very much. And there are so many birds and <laughs> I had to mention, I'm, I am a budding birder. I'm, I'm starting to get into it here. So I don't know that I have actually found the bird that I embody, but I can share this with you. Uh, I have been a backyard birder for a very long time. And there is one very unobtrusive little bird that until very recently, I was never able to see, but I was struck by its song. And this bird has the most beautiful song and it's a Heidi Heidi bird. It hides, so it's hard to find and it's small and it's brown. So it isn't flashy with bright plumage, but the song, Christy, will stop you in its tracks. So I don't know that I necessarily embody this bird, but it's the Carolina Wren. And you can go on Audubon's website and search for this bird and click and hear its song. And that fascinates me. I love to hear the song. I know what season I'm going to hear the song and I listen for it for the entire season. Wakes me up in the morning while I'm tending my tomatoes and my peppers and my herbs in my backyard. I listen for that song. It's a it's a, a harbinger of spring for me. And she sings right up until the hottest weather. And then I know that I have to settle back in and wait in expectation for the next spring. And I yearn for it every spring because I know then spring is sprung and good weather's coming because the Carolina Wren is back in my backyard. I love that. I just want to thank you again. This was just such an incredible conversation, just learning about your story and the work that you're doing, the very important work that you're doing to advance women of color in particular in the environmental field. It is really inspiring to me. And I think it's something that I've been searching for for a while for the past few months as I started this show. I've been really looking for folks like you who I know live this and breathe this career and this passion in your everyday life. And I can just like see it and hear it in your voice. And I think that it's something that brings me joy and hope in my career and my future. And I just want to show everyone that I wore this bird pin just for today's interview, just because I was so excited for it. And just thank you. Thank you for joining this conversation. And I hope that we're able to share more resources from Audubon so more folks can learn about the great work that you're all doing. So just to finish it off, are there any other resources or items that you would like to recommend to our listeners today that you think plug them in? Well, I would like to plug you in to www.audubon.org where there are all kinds of resources to explore, to understand 
much more about why it's important that we ought to be protecting the planet by protecting the birds and wildlife habitat. So please log in, um, click us click us on and go through. There are all kinds of rich resources for learning. And also, Christy, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to join you today and remind everyone what an example you are for young people and all people. Um, we're not breaking new ground in helping uh, people of color experience the environment and nature. We are contributing to ongoing work. We're soldiers. And I wanna thank you for your role in helping move all this forward. And thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit about why I think it's so important that we are all actively involved in this work. Thank you so much, Dion. And thank you everyone who's listening. You can check out more of my episodes on my Crowdcast profile, crowdcast.io slash browngirlgreen. You can also check out my Instagram and social media on Twitter at browngirl underscore green. So thank you again. This is Brown Girl Green. My name is Christy Drutman, and I interview environmental leaders and advocates about workplace and member diversity and inclusion. I'm working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. I hope that you got something interesting out of it, whether it was learning how to start talking to your organization, your company, your club at school, etc., about how to start dismantling systems of oppression, systems of white supremacy, etc., whether it was considering how you could make spaces more equitable or inclusive in the outdoors, or if you just want to go birding sometime. I love birding. I love posting about backyard birding. You can find a post on my website and on my Instagram talking about how you can start birding. Nature is colorblind, but people are not, and we have to address that. And I hope that if anything, you learn that from this episode and that you will share these lessons moving forward that we cannot be silent about oppression in our society today. If we operate out of a space of hatred and fear, it's just gonna continue perpetuating these systems. So please live with love and kindness in your heart moving forward. If you're going to a protest, be safe and know that I'm thinking about you. And if you ever wanna go birding, hit me up in my DMs. Catch you on the next episode of Brown Girl Green.